Good morning, church. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, we're already at the preacher. We'll have more singing later. It's okay. It's all good. I want to I wanna tell you a quick story before we jump into Colossians. Robert was a young man whose parents were very successful in the newspaper publishing world. They were regular church attenders, active in their church. When Robert was 16, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And that put him on a collision course with a calling that would eventually see him at the age of 24 leave his parents, his inheritance, and his country in pursuit of a mission field that needed to know about the love of Jesus Christ. His life would never be the same. We are carrying on in our Left on Red series. We have been wandering through the letters of Paul. For some, it may have seemed like we are on a road trip because we're stopping periodically along the way in cities and churches all along Paul's missionary journeys. But this letter, the letter of Colossians, goes out to a church that Paul had never been to. It was not part of his missionary journey. It was not even on his radar until he heard about it from a fellow prisoner. According to commentators, Colossae was a relatively small town in Western Asia Minor what is now known as modern-day Turkey. It was closely connected with two other cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis, which Paul mentions later on in Colossians. These towns were all located in a geographic area known as Lycus Valley. The only reference to Colossae in the New Testament is in the opening line of this letter. The book of Acts tells us that Paul passed through the region of Asia on both his second and third missionary journeys, but it makes no mention of these towns, and it does not point him to winning any converts there. So why, why is Paul writing a letter to a church he didn't start and to a people he has never met and never would meet? Why does this beautiful letter of poetry and theological truth even exist? We're going to start in verse 1, chapter 1. I'm going to give you a bit of a warning it's an unusual warning in church. We're going to go through a lot of scripture today. So if you want to follow along, there are Bibles in your pews in front of you. And um, so it's going to be fast. Here we go. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. This is quite the intro. Paul is enthusiastically greeting the people of Colossae. He says he thanks God for them. He refers to them as faithful. And yet his greetings are formal. Like he has never met them. Like he's only heard about them. Like the only way he knows they even exist is because someone asked him to write a letter to them. To encourage them, to inspire them, and to redirect them. Who is this courageous church planter who is boldly proclaiming Christ in this region of the world? Paul mentions him in verse 7. You learned it 
from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Epaphras, we know very little about him. He is only mentioned in Colossians and the book of Philemon, but his impact on the body of Christ is noteworthy. In the book of Philemon, Epaphras is described as a fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Commentators believe he is imprisoned with Paul for his own work in spreading the gospel throughout the known world. Verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Have you also noticed during the intro this curious we that Paul continually employs throughout this intro? In Colossians chapter 4, Paul mentions a number of people who seem to be in chains with him or at least visiting him, who spend their time praying, encouraging one another, and writing to the churches to spur them on. It almost seems like this jail might be kind of crowded and noisy and full of joy. Let's finish up this intro and hear Paul's words to the Colossians as if he is writing them to us. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So beautiful. Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. If this is true, how are we living and giving our lives away for the sake of that truth? That's the incredible, beautiful, and heartfelt beginning of Colossians. Now let's look into the context of this wonderful letter. What do we know so far? Well, we know, first of all, Paul is writing this letter from prison, like he has done for much of the other letters we have recorded in the New Testament. Most commentators agree that this was one of the letters written near the end of his life. They also agree that the style of this letter is more formal, which they explain because he's writing to a people he does not know and has only heard about. In this letter, Paul takes aim at some pervasive, deceptive, and altogether not unusual th ideas that he is warning the church of Colossae about. He is aware that the early church has struggled with these concepts, he wants to make clear to all who are reading the letter his thoughts. You will see that in the church of today, we also have these same struggles. Paul tackles three main ideas in the book of Colossians. He gives them warnings, about hollow and deceptive philosophies that are rampant in the area. He wants them to understand that rules, laws, and rituals cannot and will not save them. And he wants to give them some instructions on how to live as Christians. We're going to look at all three of these, but I'm not going to necessarily follow Paul's thoughts in chronological order. We're going to head backwards through this book because the first thing Paul says after his introduction is the last thing I want you to remember. So let's start with his instructions for married people and their kids. Let's jump right into this controversial passage. Uh, usually a hot topic amongst Christian men, writers of marriage books, and especially people who love to quote Paul and not follow his or Jesus' example. 
Now, I want to be clear. This is not the only time Paul has given instructions on how a family should conduct itself. There are another 40 verses in 1 Corinthians and 21 verses in Ephesians. Colossians is more of a summary of his thoughts. Considering the fact that Paul has been speaking and traveling and starting churches everywhere, I feel as though you should read this like a man who is kind of asking himself, why do I keep having to say this? Paul gives the Colossians four verses, just four. One thought for wives, one thought for children, two very important messages for husbands and fathers. And to be extra clear, these words are written after a beautiful section on how we are to live as followers of Christ. So I'm going to jump all the way to chapter 3, verse 18, to unpack this one. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, before you start writing me emails, let's look a bit further into this particular verse, and especially this word submission. If you are trying to email me, it's jpayton at fac. <laughs> Let me just be clear. In Ephesians 5.21, he actually begins this entire conversation with these words. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Read it like this. Everyone, submit to each other. I found this great quote in a blog post from one of my favorite Christian authors, Sheila Ray Gregoire. Here is what she writes about submission. First, let me start with the basics. We're called to submit to one another. Submission is a wonderful thing, but we can mean different things from the word. Because we're all to submit to one another, the word doesn't have hierarchy connotations as Jesus explains more fully in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28. The point of the Christian life is about serving. It's about a spirit of humility, as we find in Philippians 2, 1 to 11, where we have the mind of Christ and we consider the interests of others higher than our own. We seek to serve. The heart of Paul's words here is on submission to each other because submission, humility, and service were so incredibly countercultural at the time of Paul's writing. Unfortunately, it also seems to be in short supply today. Let's move on. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. I feel like this doesn't need much explanation. 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Wouldn't life as parents be much easier if, if our children just listened to Paul? And her, here in verse 21 is what Paul writes to fathers. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. I love it. It's simple. It's short. It's sweet. It's almost the last thing he writes in this letter. Like it's almost an afterthought. Hey, by the way, I know what I'm asking you to do is countercultural, but it's a way of living that points to Jesus rather than ourselves. Now, sometimes on a road trip, we need to take a bit of a back up to find the right way to go. So we're going to back up all the way through chapter 3. Don't worry, we'll get there. And start again in Colossians 2, verse 9, and tackle the next struggle Paul identifies for the church in Colossae, the idea that rules, laws, and rituals cannot and will not save you. Although Colossae was a Gentile town, it had a large Jewish population. Reports indicate that the Jewish settlers were thoroughly integrated into the Greco-Roman culture. They were then pressuring the Colossian church 
to adapt both the Jewish practices and the Greco-Roman behaviors. A heavy weight to bear for new Christians who are just trying to find their faith and their first steps as followers of Christ. As an example of this, when I was in Ecuador on a missions trip, one of the missionaries explained to me that it was actually quite easy to lead the Ecuadorians to Christ because according to him, they just added Jesus to the list of other little G gods they were already following. The struggle came in helping them to understand that Jesus was all they needed for salvation. <clears throat> Once I heard that, I could see that, that same struggle reflected in every culture, included here in Canada. For every culture has something within it that needs to be surrendered, redeemed, and reconciled by Christ. Let's look at how Paul unpacks this idea, starting in Colossians 2, verse 9. Paul begins by reassuring them that Jesus is head over every power and authority. Verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Let's not get distracted by a discussion of circumcision. At this time we have a lot of this book still to unpack. But understand that the entire point of that practice was to separate a people unto God. And Paul is pointing to an idea that we can be separated unto God by a spiritual circumcision of the heart. Let's continue with verse 11. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And here is a reference to baptism, which is still practiced worldwide by the church today. Just like circumcision, it's a way of separating ourselves from the world and publicly declaring our lives united with Christ. We get that opportunity today to celebrate this truth as people from our congregation are walking through the waters of baptism just like they did in Paul's day. Reading further in verses 13 to 15, Paul reminds us that God forgives us our sins. He nails them. Paul calls them our indebtedness to the cross. Through his sacrifice, Jesus then renders all other powers and authorities powerless. These verses are a reminder that this whole process was not, cannot actually be accomplished by us, by our knowledge, our wisdom, or our activities. It was accomplished solely by the death and resurrection of Jesus. <clears throat> then Paul goes further and starts naming those things that are now powerless as a result of his work on the cross. Let's look at verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Jesus Christ. Here Paul lumps everything together. Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, Romans. They all have laws, rules, and rituals that have no actual power over their salvation. He goes on in verse 18 to write about people who through false humility proclaim themselves as highly spiritual, while also disqualifying the Colossian believers because they do not follow the same rules or worship the same spiritual beings. Paul goes on in verse 19 to explain why these people are confused. Paul writes, they have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. If you recognize this, 
It's because these ideas are common refrains for Paul, who writes about the connected body in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians. Now Paul really gets going, and I'm just going to start paraphrasing so you can stay with me. Paul writes, since you died with Christ, why, as if you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Yes, they do have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in bringing about sustainable life change. If you've ever heard, dancing leads to sin, you know what Paul is talking about. If you've ever heard you can't watch movies or TV on a Sunday, you know what Paul is talking about. Or if you've ever heard real Christians don't drink that, wear jeans to church, or only read a specific version of the Bible, you know what Paul is talking about. These rules, rituals, laws, and traditions won't save you. This is being written by the same guy who wrote, I became all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. In this passage, Paul is referring to a kind of behavior modification that in a way might actually be good for the reputation, good for likes and followers, a kind of self-denial that looks great on the outside but does not lead to spiritual growth. They become outside markers Behavioral examples of a changed life without actually having to go through the kind of suffering that actually leads to a changed life. There is no hope in that. Our hope is in Christ. Let's look at the last of these ideas that Paul identifies in his letter to the Colossians. He gives them warnings about following hollow and deceptive philosophies that are rampant in the area. The Lycos Valley was renowned as a haven for exotic spiritual pursuits. Numerous pagan cults and mystery religions were popular there. They worshipped many deities, including the sun, the moon, and the stars, which may be what Paul is referring to when he references the elemental spirits of the universe. All of these cults and religions have their own philosophies, their own ways of explaining the universe, and just like today, many of us can get tangled up in these seemingly plausible and sometimes believable ideas and concepts. So let's back up again and start reading Colossians 2, verse 2. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and unified in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. According to commentators, Colossians is written to believers who are tempted to supplement the fruit that the gospel is bearing with wisdom and knowledge that they think will bring them to another level of spiritual maturity. Paul wants to be very clear that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Paul continues, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And here he states it again. See to it 
that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Paul goes on to reassure them in verses 9 and 10 of the truth that everything they need to know for salvation is found in Jesus Christ. He is the head over every power and authority. Paul is writing specifically to clarify to the Colossian believers that they need not rely on their own ideas, their deep philosophy, or their own wisdom to enhance their status as Christians. His concern is that these philosophies can both divide the Colossian believers and also hold them captive. For those of you who have been following along on this series, this idea is not new. You will recall that James spoke about the danger of adding anything to Jesus. He referred to it as Jesus plus. For the Colossians, their struggle was adding new philosophies and ideas into the mix. They believed that these somehow added worth or weight to their status as Christians. When I was young, I was obsessed with the end times. I grew up in the 80s, and there were a ton of books and Christian movies written about the end times. There were a lot of people predicting the end of the world, the rapture, the tribulation, what would happen in the year 2000. I read every book in our church library about prophecy. And I remember having many conversations with my dad. I was trying to get her perspective on my new obsession. I was asking him about pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. I asked him if he knew which beast represented Russia or USA, and also why Canada is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. Come on. <laughs> he kind of listened to me and let me go down my rabbit trails. He was very patient with my crazy theories. Then, while in Bible college, I became obsessed with the beginnings of time. I read books on the gap theory, evolution, scientific explanations on everything from carbon dating to geologic interpretations of time with eons, epochs, eras, and ages. Once again, I got an, into a number of conversations with my dad. He patiently put up with my long, excessively detailed explanations and charts of Genesis and um, trying to outline where dinosaurs were in the book of Job. <laughs> At some point, he explained his understanding of the Bible, which was mind-blowing to me at the time. He took his Bible and showed me that there is a beginning that lots of people like to argue about, a beginning where God creates everything, and there's a ton of debate on how he did it. He also showed me that in his Bible, there's a book at the very end called Revelation. And there's also a ton of debate on what this book is actually about. Then he showed me the Gospels and said that the most important part of the Bible, in his opinion, is Jesus. He told me that he believes that Jesus was there in the beginning and that he would be there at the end. So we need to focus on him. And that perspective stayed with me for the rest of my life. Paul is asking the Colossian believers not to be divided by these philosophies. We sometimes fall into this trap as well. When we divide ourselves based upon our complicated ideas and interpretations of certain scriptures or styles of worship. Paul is also warning the Colossians not to be taken captive by these hollow and deceptive philosophies. 
This was a hard one for me to put my finger on, to express the thought in modern times. But it boils down to this. It's any belief or philosophy that begins to grow in its importance or significance to us, that it sets itself up as equal or greater to Christ. Like a black hole, it begins to consume all of our time, attention, our focus, and often even our money. This can be everything from politics to beliefs that were passed down through generations, to ways of seeing the world that are contrary to God's law. In other ways, this can mean something as simple and seemingly spiritual as trusting and relying on horoscopes, vision boards, or essential oils. It can be simply speaking into the universe the desires of your heart and the hope that those wishes and dreams might manifest. It may seem that everyone is spiritual. Everyone wants to believe in something that is bigger than themselves, but they don't want it to be Jesus. That's what Paul is warning us about. Paul wants us to live and give our lives away for the right reasons, not to rules, laws, or rituals, not to hollow and deceptive philosophies that divide us and hold us captive. Paul wants us to live and give our lives away for Jesus. So where do we go from here? Why did Paul ultimately write a letter to a people he did not know and had not ever met? He wrote this letter because a student of his who had experienced a changed life began to put into practice Paul's teachings and started a church. Multiple churches, in fact. This letter exists because Epaphras experienced the life-changing call of God on his life, and he let it become his destiny. Ultimately, it would lead to his eventual imprisonment with Paul. Now, in the beginning, I told you about a young man named Robert who gave his life to Jesus at 16 years old. I want to give you a few more details of this incredible man's life. After his conversion, he was determined to go to Bible college, but his parents wanted him to join them in their very successful newspaper publishing business. They were good, regular church attenders, generous, wealthy, and powerful in the community. Robert was told that if he followed his dreams of going to Bible college and becoming a missionary, he might lose out on the family fortune that was available to him as the son of the owner of what would eventually become the Globe and Mail. But Robert was not faced. He was not deterred. He would not be persuaded. He did attend Bible college and left for China as a missionary at the age of 24. Robert was not satisfied with simply leading people to Jesus. He also started churches everywhere he went and was determined to train up local pastors who knew the language, culture, and the community. To do this work, he used the tools of his father to develop and publish magazines and Bible study curriculum in the Chinese language. And like Epaphras, he continually checked up on his churches through letters and visits to make sure that they were staying on track, growing in their faith, and leading others to Jesus. During World War II, Robert was given an opportunity to leave China to come back to Canada. According to reports from his fellow missionaries, he couldn't bear to leave China when so many of his Chinese workers, pastors, and missionary friends would not be given the same opportunity. He chose to stay and continue the work as long as he could. Eventually, he, his wife, and daughter, along with a number of other missionaries, were detained in an internment camp, and he died there 
having fulfilled his life's mission of bringing Jesus' words to the people of China. His impact is still felt today through his legacy of alliance churches, movements, and missionary training schools. Robert Jaffray started all this as a young man who trusted his life to his Savior, Jesus Christ, and knew that he had to fulfill the mission of his Heavenly Father. This is also why I've given my life to student ministry. Because ultimately, we are always looking for the next Robert Jaffray, the next Epaphras, the next Paul. The next student who will pour their lives out in pursuit of God's mission. For those of you who are not aware, both our youth pastor Morgan and our worship associate Paige Flewelling have left homes and flown across the country at a young age to pursue their calling in ministry. And if any of you want to join us in this incredibly important mission, we are always looking for more youth leaders. Come talk to me after. I'll sign you up. I also think we have the most fun. All right, let's keep going. What could cause such life-altering devotion? What could so alter the path of a young man that he would give up his future, his inheritance, his status? What changed the life of Robert Jaffray? What changed the life of Epaphras? And what changed the life of Paul on the road to Damascus in what must have felt like lifetimes ago when he was writing this letter? Let's head back to Colossians for a moment. Right after his introduction, Paul writes these words in Colossians 1. Commentators believe these words were a hymn or a creed that was commonly used in the early church, simply a way of reminding the church of all that they believe and hold dear. This is the truth that these young men were willing to give their lives for. Colossians 1 verse 15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, just to clarify, this is a positional statement. Jesus was not created. But in the biblical sense, he is the ultimate authority. The firstborn is the heir. This statement was understood by the early church. It's just us who get tripped over it because we don't follow these same traditions with our children. With that understanding, let me read this again. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is who Jesus is. That is our hope. Chuck Swindoll says it like this. Your view of Jesus will impact every area of your life. I believe this is why Paul starts his letter with this. He needs to clarify what is most important. Jesus is God. He is the creator. He is above all things, above all rulers, authorities, above all other gods. And he is reconciling all things to himself through his work on the cross. Verse 21, Paul goes on to clarify who we are. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. 
If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. If the truth these young men were willing to give their lives for is really true, the truth that Jesus is the son of the invisible God, and in him all things were created, and that he is before all things, and in him, in him all things hold together, and that he is the head of the body, the church, and that he is the beginning and the end and the firstborn from among the dead, and that through his death and resurrection, Christ made peace through the blood shed on the cross to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. If this is all true, how are we living and giving away our lives for this truth? So I'd like to take a moment now and pause and let the Holy Spirit speak to us and let him show us where we need to put our focus. How can our lives reflect this truth? What does this look like for you? How does the story of Robert, Robert Jaffray, Epaphras, or even the story of Paul writing to a people he's never met speak to your life today? If this is true, how might it change our families? Are there any hollow and deceptive philosophies that are dividing us or holding us captive? Are there any rules, laws, and rituals that we continue to follow even though they cannot bring us salvation and might just be taking our focus away from Jesus? Let's take this moment and let the Holy Spirit speak. As we continue in a posture of reflection and worship, I just want to take the opportunity to read these words over you from Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. 
and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through 